Thank you for joining the special edition of Harper Audio Presents, where we are excerpting the new novel from Ryan Gaddis, who has been compared to Richard Price, George Pelicanos, and Dennis Lehane. The novel, All Involved, publishing from Echo Press on April 7, 2015, takes place over six days in 1992 with the LA riots as backdrop. Today's excerpt is from day four, Saturday. The novel contains profane language and some violence and is not intended for children. If you have children listening, you'll want to turn the podcast off now. We'll serialize a children's book later in the year, and this is not for them. Ryan, please tell us who Clever is and how he's related to the murder victim, Ernesto Vera. Also known as Sherlock Homeboy, Clever is the absolute mastermind of the gang. He's going to college for crime scene investigation so he can use what he learns to help the gang. And... He was actually doing that on the night of day one when he investigated uh, the crime scene where Ernesto died. In this section, Clever is waiting in the casino house in the neighborhood that the gang runs, a place known as Mini Vegas. He's watching Big Fate wait for the authorities to come after a shootout, and he subsequently explains everything the sheriffs will be looking for before they even look for it. It's as if he's seeing 10 moves ahead in a chess game. He always knows what's coming, so he can counteract it. Later, he revisits Ernesto's crime scene, the one he once investigated himself, and he's surprised at what he finds there. Here is narrator Anthony Ray Perez reading from Day 4 from All Involved. 6. It was Fate's idea to wait for the sheriffs on the curb, so it's up to me to make sure he's got nothing on him when they show up. He's doing it because he doesn't want them knocking on doors. He knows they'll try to find him, knows they'll want to talk to him, because they'll probably be able to tell from the address that he was a target and he doesn't feel like being on the run when he can just get it over with. It's not like it'll be the first time he's ever been questioned. Truth is, we're hoping the National Guard shows up first. We'd feel safer with them than Vikings. With Vikings, you never know how they'll try to do you. They're sneaky. And the worst part is you never know who actually is one. Sure, they got tattoos on them, but I've never seen one. It's not like we can see those through socks, through a uniform. Basically, you only know them from their actions, and once you do, it's too late. Which is why we want Fate waiting out in the open, with plenty of people watching. There's still no guarantee he won't be hurt, but you have to admire the courage of it. Before I send him out to do it, though, I have to be extra sure he's got no gunshot residue on his hands. It's just me and Fate in the casino house now. There's nobody else around because I can't have them contaminating him when I test his hands. It's unlikely there's any present, but if there is, I'll find it. When a gun kicks out a bullet, it sprays two potassiums in it, tiny particles of gunpowder, nitrates and nitrites. But that's the simplistic way of saying it. The chemical elements potentially present in GSR depend on the ammunition type. The major primers are lead, PB, barium, BA, and antimony, SB, which are pretty much in everything most of the time. To memorize those, I told myself, the peanut butter barbers steal besos. Does it make sense? Haircutting dudes made out of peanut butter stealing kisses? No, but it helps me remember, so there must be something to it. Combinations of less common elements depend on bullet size, caliber, and manufacture, and sometimes region of manufacture because certain things are more available or cheaper in different parts of the world. So there can be any of these, aluminum, AL, calcium, CA, Chlorine, Cl, Copper, Cu, Potassium, K, Al called Clarita Cucumber Killer, and Sulfur, S, 
silicon Si, tin Sn, and strontium Sr, titanium Ti, zinc Zn. Simone silently snitched and sheriffs turned zombies nightly. In the empty kitchen, I heat up some wax over one of the low gas burners on the stove and apply it to his hands. Fake grunts, but doesn't say anything. He knows the drill. When the wax cools enough, I peel it off, taking away whatever residue is left with it. This is called an adhesive collection device, but really, it's just paraffin. If there's anything left on his hands, anything that got through the gloves, I should be capturing all the substances they'd love to use for evidence to prove he was at the scene and shooting. In the old days, cops would collect it this way, and then they'd squirt a little diphenylamine and sulfuric acid on the wax. I do that now. If it turns blue, it means it has nitrates on it, and fate would be busted. Nowadays, most law enforcement agencies swab with a 5% solution of nitric acid and submit tabs to the crime lab. But even Sturm says it's at capacity or overrun at the best of times. I can't imagine how it is now with all the chaos going on. Hey, I say, turning around and showing fate my back. Do I have a cut or something on my neck? Felt like I got hit with a little something back there. You got a red mark, a little burn. The skin's not broken, he says. I nod and hold the wax under the kitchen light above the sink and check for the kind of blueness that would indicate nitrates of an amount to suggest the recent firing of a deadly weapon, but it is extremely faint. In my determination, it is not consistent, and if it's not consistent for me, it will be the same for anyone else too. Clean, I say. Fate nods at me before heading out to the curb to wait for whatever's coming. 7. The timing couldn't be better. In less than a minute, our street is flooded with National Guards, two Humvees worth, about six of them. We have no beef with them. I watch as they lock down the street. I'm sitting at the window of the casino house with the lights off still, but I've opened it a touch so I can hear what's going on. Holy shit, one of the soldiers says when he sees how torn up Lou's house is. That was one hell of a firefight. When they spot fate and zero in on him, they ask him to step up with his hands out all the way to his side so they can pat him down. When they determine he does not have a weapon, they ask him what he's doing there, sitting across the street from a crime scene. Waiting, Fate says. One of the guardsmen, a short black guy with a mustache, says, For what? Sheriffs, Fate says. Oh, you're tough, huh? You know the drill? The guard guy squares up to Fate. How long you been in a gang? I don't know what you're talking about, sir. I just live here. Right. The guardsman looks like he's about to do something, but he backs off. Well, you just sit yourself back down there till the law comes. I'm sure they'll want to talk your ear off. Since fate isn't acting unruly and does not have a weapon, they can find no reason to detain him. But they still hover close to him as neighbors from down the block filter out into the street and thank the National Guardsman for coming so fast. We told them to do that, but they seem pretty sincere about it, which is a good sell. Within about a minute, sheriffs arrive. They come screaming up with sirens and lights, pop their doors, and pile out into the street. When there's three or four black and white sheriff's cruisers, the National Guards catch another call and caravan off into the night. By then, there's at least 20 people out on the street. Sheriffs are establishing a perimeter around the house and keeping people back when an unmarked black car pulls up and a blonde guy gets out. I recognize him because we've seen him around. His name's Erickson, and he's a murder sheriff. Fate's gotten hauled in a bunch to answer questions before. He's known to them. One time, 
They even arrested him. The furthest they ever got was getting the DA to agree to file on charges saying that fate was an accessory to murder, only to have a judge drop the charges for lack of evidence. They want him bad. They've wanted him for years. Erickson walks up to the fence of the house to look at what Trouble did, and I see fate, see him, and stand up. It's really weird Erickson's here right now, because it's against protocol. Normally, he would only show if there was a body confirmed down. They'd have gotten reports of shooting, but without a known death determined by officers at the scene, there's no reason to send murder detectives. They've got enough to deal with, especially in South Central. But seeing Erickson here, now, makes me think he knows something. He got here way too quick otherwise, and I can tell by the tilt of Fate's head that he's thinking it too. We don't know for certain if Erickson's a Viking, but he sure does have a Viking-sounding name. He looks torn up, though, like he's been pulling shifts since this whole thing kicked off and hasn't had one moment of sleep. He's tired-looking, squinty, and licking his lips a lot, like he's dehydrated from drinking coffee 24-7. He's got messed-up hair and a messed-up blazer and messed-up jeans like he's been wearing the same ones for a day or two and hasn't taken a shower. Vikings will lie to you about what they have, whether witnesses or evidence or what. This isn't unusual. Law enforcement is allowed to mislead in order to obtain confessions or further evidence. But these neo-Nazi motherfuckers go above and beyond. A lot of them still remember when Linwood used to be a mostly white neighborhood, and they'd kill us all if they could get away with it. Some of them already have. We've lost six homies to Vikings so far. We're putting some families forward for a class-action lawsuit against the sheriff's department for racially motivated hostility, among other things. They'll get there someday. I don't know when, but someday. But I can tell you this right now. Nobody's doing that to fate with so many witnesses out there. And even better, nobody's framing him either. I drilled him good. He knows to tell his lawyer to ask for a particle count if they want to test him for firing a weapon. If they try to lie to him and tell him there's a positive test, which I can tell you right now, there won't be. He knows to tell his lawyer he's been working on his car, on the brake linings, because some of the particles for GSR can come from that too. He knows if they don't bag his hands, we have grounds to argue cross-contamination. In that case, particles can come from the cops at the scene or even the environment. Erickson spots fate out of the corner of his eye, whips around, and walks at him fast. He's pretty much foaming at the mouth the way he marches over, and fate's taller by about a couple inches. But Erickson works his belt on his hips and points his fucking finger in Fate's face, all disrespectful. You're going to tell me what the high holy hell happened here, Jose, and you're going to do it right the fuck now. It's not smart to do that to a guy in his own neighborhood, showing him up like that. Still, Fate doesn't blink. Lawyer, he says, and that's all he says. One word that's guaranteed to piss off all law enforcement everywhere, especially in South Central. Because around here, most fools will talk to law enforcement. They might even waive their rights. Not us, though. We know there's a system in place to protect us. Oh, listen to this one. Some redneck sheriff on the perimeter says, He already wants a lawyer. He's guilty as sin. Erickson puts a look on that guy that makes him shut his mouth and turn away. Listen, I know who was here and why they were here, Erickson says to fate. Odds are. This was probably self-defense for you and your homeboys, but you're going to make me pick you up on proximity? On suspicion of involvement? Look, I just want to know what happened. Fate just says, 
lawyer. It's the last time he's going to say it. Erickson turns away, disgusted. Somebody cuff this evil genius, he says. And they do cuff him. But that's when they screw up, because they don't bag his hands. If they ever wanted a GSR test to stand in court, they'd have to ensure contamination could not occur. The only way to do that is to bag him, but they don't. The amateurs. They just put him in the back of Erickson's unmarked and bounce. It takes 23 minutes for another detective to arrive and go over the house. I timed it. After he's here, I watch him study the lawn, then the house, and then shake his head. You can tell he doesn't even want to bother, and it makes me feel good. He knows all he can do is pull slugs from the house, whatever got stuck in there, but he knows he doesn't have shit. They don't know how many people were there, how many guns were fired, how many people were hit, much less who was hit, or where they stood, or if it was fatal. This is a blown scene, and without the bodies, if there even are any bodies, they have nothing. There's nothing even close to prosecutable here, and it's a waste of his time. But he still walks over the muddy lawn, laying his numbers for shell casings that likely won't even match the ammunition in the house, photographing the bullet holes and stucco, all that. On this lack of evidence, they won't even be able to hold fate. Only way they could is if they had a witness statement, which they don't, and never will. He'll be out in a matter of hours. 8. I wait over an hour for the sheriffs to leave before I take Wizard's little twenty-two pistol from its shelf in the closet and slip out the back into the alley. I need it just in case. I'm certain there's at least a couple getaway drivers of troubles out here somewhere. With any luck, they took off when they heard the AK, and then none of their boys came back. But you never know, so I'm not taking chances. The alley behind Mini Vegas is empty, except for a stray dog nosing around the base of a telephone pole at the end of the block. Black silhouettes of palm trees sway slow above garages. There's not much wind, but there's some. I'm aiming to go to my girlfriend Irene's house to wait this out until fate comes and gets me. I sniffle and spit on the asphalt as I go. For a second before I hit the boardwalk, I smell magnolias, sweet and clean, a little lemony. But then my nose stuffs back up and it's gone. That good thing, only with me for a second, is gone. I decide on a detour. I need to go by the alley where Ernesto got it to check and make sure they picked him up. I've been too busy since we started planning for trouble, and I haven't even asked if a little homie would run over and check. And ever since I lied to lose face about Ernesto not being there anymore, it's been picking at me. When we dragged the gas station manager out of his girlfriend's bed to unlock a unical on MLK so we could steal a mess of gas to soak the sheets in, I thought of Ernesto lying out on the asphalt. That happened a bunch of times during our preparations. I'd be rummaging through the city truck looking for a twist lock to three-prong adapter to make sure we could plug the construction lights into the house because they work on a different type of socket, and I'd remember, and I'd get a stitch in my stomach, and I'd want to know if he was still out there. But then there'd be six other things to do to get ready, and I'd forget. All this is odd for me. Like I said, I'm not accustomed to missing people or even thinking about them after they're gone. But this is different. I need to know what happened. As I turn into the alley, my lungs get tight, and I'm expecting him still to be there, lying flat with his head wrapped up in loose black and white flannel like a cow. But he's not there. I sniffle at that. I nod, relieved, and my lungs let go. I walk to the spot where Joker and his homeboys must have caught up to him, where they first stabbed him, and I stand near it. Someday, 
When she's ready, Lou's going to want to know everything. She'll want to know how many times he was stabbed. Fifteen or seventeen by my count. The ragged shape of two wounds made it difficult to tell in the light I had if the knife went in and just ripped out at a different angle or if he had been stabbed twice in the same two spots. She'll want to know how else they hurt him and I'll have to tell her about the blunt object, likely a baseball bat. Twenty yards away, just inside an open garage three down on the right with its overhead light off, a dot of orange flares up and fades. I freeze. Someone's leaning on the trunk of a car while smoking a cigarette. I put my hand in my pocket and onto Wizard's gun, and I walk a few steps closer until I can see I don't have anything to worry about, so I take my hand out and put it by my side. She doesn't notice me at first, but I recognize her as the nurse who tried to help Ernesto, the one who talked to Lou about what she saw. Her name's Gloria. I know because my girlfriend's dream is to be a nurse just like her. Irene is homegirls with Gloria's younger sister, Lydia, and they both go to school for it now, nights. Irene's got about a year to go. From what I can tell about Gloria's posture, the way she's perched, she's still seeing him, even now, because her eyes are on the alley floor, too. She's thinking about Wednesday night. I know it. She's been looking at the space where Ernesto finally came to rest, at the place we found him after he had been dragged and the wire had been removed from his ankles. This nurse, she's been looking at what I've been looking at, a space where a person used to be, a place where a person no longer is. But she still sees Ernesto, too, the memory of him. I make a little noise, kick a couple pebbles as I shuffle closer on the side of the alley across from her, but not too much. I don't want to startle her, but she still starts a little when she sees me, and the car beneath her bounces up on its axles before settling back down with her weight. Gloria recognizes me as someone who was here before. She doesn't show it. We share a look, though. A look I'm not sure goes both ways, but maybe it does. It's a look of understanding, a look of, I know, I saw it too. And I'm not sure what that is exactly, or what it means if it means anything. But maybe it's something for people to know they aren't alone and feeling a bad thing. I nod at her. She doesn't return it. Instead, the lit cigarette returns to her mouth, and that orange dot gets bright as she inhales. To show her I'm not a threat, I break eye contact and look away. I look up. The sky is more dark purple tonight. Not as black from smoke as it has been the past couple nights, which means fewer and fewer fires are happening. It's almost over, I think. The riots, these days of freedom. Above us, I see the blinking red lights of a plane. It's descending, going to LAX. I get thinking it's the first airplane I've seen in a while, and I start walking again. I don't look to the nurse as I go. We've shared whatever it is we needed to. Nine. I need to get to Irene so I pick up the pace. I can't be out like this much longer. I sniffle and look back up at the airplane again, right before it passes out of sight. I wonder who's on it anyway, and why they would fly into LA at a time like this. Maybe people who already had their vacation scheduled and couldn't miss them. I didn't even know people like that actually existed until I went to LA Southwest College for the crime scene stuff. I'd only ever seen those people on TV before that. Really, school is a whole other world. And seeing it, navigating in it enough to get some new people skills I didn't even know I needed, has me feeling like I'm two different people now. There's me the homeboy, clever, down for whatever, and there's me the student, Robert Rivera. Mr. Rivera, as Sturm calls me. I've got a wall between those sides of me now. It's kind of like 
I've got a double life. In a way, I grew into it. Coming up as a little homie, eager to prove myself and be somebody, anybody. I dropped out of school at 13 because Lou did. School for me was boring and slow. I'd pick stuff up quick and then had to sit around and wait for everybody else to get it. At home, my mom was never around, but that's not really an excuse, just a fact. I hung out with Lou instead of being alone, and we did all kinds of dumb shit. I might have kept doing that if fate hadn't seen something in both of us. If he hadn't told me I was too smart to be banging how other homies were banging. I had to use my mind instead because it was a more dangerous weapon. He set it up so I could get my GED, and I didn't even know there was such a thing for high school equivalency before he said so. He got me a tutor and everything to help catch me up. That tutor was Irene. Four days a week she worked with me until I was reading better, writing papers, finding out there was a difference between spoken and written English, that I couldn't just write however I wanted and make sense, that there were rules. She even had me doing algebra in no time. If it wasn't for her and fate, I'd still be running the streets and nothing else. They changed my life. I owe them both for that. I owe them everything. I started at Southwest last year because that's what fate wanted and he fronts the cash for it. I was scared of it at first because I'd never even been out of my neighborhood before. But I found out I really like it. I found out I'm good at it. Maybe that's dangerous though because it's had me wondering every so often what a life outside the neighborhood would look like or what I would even do to get it. But I never told fate that. Lou neither. The other day I caught myself thinking about maybe getting a place with Irene. Maybe even starting a family. 18 might be too young to be thinking that, but I know fools who had kids at 15, some even younger. I don't know if Irene would go for it, though. She's not the government assistance type. Also, I'm pretty sure we'd have to get married. Her family's pretty traditional. I came here to Linwood in 1973 from Thailand when she was two. She doesn't speak much Thai because her parents wanted her to be American, and only that. They didn't want any language barrier holding her back. She's older than me by three years and the smartest girl I've ever met. She graduated Linwood High a year early and got into Cal State LA, but she couldn't afford it when she didn't qualify for a scholarship. When I'm getting real close to her house, I go the back way, cutting past the garage on the end, hopping a fence, and stepping up onto the ledge of the brick foundation outside Irene's room. I tap soft on the glass until she wakes up and blinks her big eyes at me from the bed. She's 5'5", with light brown eyes, and long black hair she sometimes likes to put up in a bun with a pencil through it. She jazzercises every day in her room with a videotape, so she's lean and muscular all over, and she shows it when she opens the window wide enough to let me in. She says, You okay? I heard shooting. I never admit this, but she's pretty like art is pretty. Every time I look at her, I feel pulled in, but a little terrified too. Afraid I won't ever be able to understand all of her. I heard shooting too, I say. In that moment, I decide not to tell her about seeing Gloria tonight. It'd be too much to explain. Irene sighs because she knows I've been up to no good and steps back to let me into her room. I straddle the window ledge and duck in. I slip my shoes off right away. Inside, it smells like jasmine, but I can smell of it anyway. She still got posters of Janet Jackson and Boys to Men up on one wall, and on another, she's got one for Ice Cube's record, America KKK's Most Wanted. Even though I've told her a hundred times, it's weird she likes black music, 
But then she hits me with how I love Motown and asks why I have a double standard. I don't have an answer for that, so she won't take them down. But I don't think she'd take them down even if I did. That's Irene. She's loyal. She had a little place of her own with Lydia until last year. But when her dad got deported for working at a body shop he didn't know was chopping cars, she moved back with her mom and her older sister. Now the two daughters work check stands at Ralph's on the days, and at nights they do Thai massage at a place in Carson when they can pick up hours. Irene's not big on it, but she never complains. Her mom has lung cancer and can't work, so the daughters support her and try to save up for school and to get their dad back somehow. I say, how's your mom? Any better? Irene shakes her head, but she smiles. She's on something called Taxol now. It's new. Comes from tree bark. She says it makes her joints hurt. Does she know I'm coming by tonight? Mrs. Nantakarn used to hate me being here late at night, much less staying over. But she doesn't mind as much since she got cancer and I started my degree program. A couple months ago, I even heard her ask Irene when our wedding is. She said she wanted to see one of her daughters marry before she dies. But Irene just told her to cut it out, that she'd do it when she was good and ready. I told her you might come tonight, so she had me make green curry just in case, Irene says. Speaking of moms, yours called looking for you. I think she's worried. Irene still thinks the best of my mom. She doesn't know the woman like I do. Truth is, my mom worries more about getting a fix than she worries about me. And if she called over, she needed money or a hookup, even though she knows I'd give her neither. My mom's OG. She grew up in East L.A. She was in a gang from way back, and so was my dad. They got married young and divorced young, too. So me being in a gang, even if it's not the same one, it's still like a legacy. My mom, she wishes I wasn't involved. You play, you pay. She said that since I was a little kid. She knows from experience. It might not always be how you think it's going to be, she said, but you pay one way or the other. Are you hungry? If you don't want green curry, I can cook something else. Irene yawns then, and after, she looks at me with one of those caring looks I know I'll never get sick of. Do you need anything? I've been sleeping on the floor in Mini Vegas for two days, and I ache all over, so I say, can I get a massage out of you? 10. Irene doesn't say anything. She just steps up to me, so close that the crown of her head is under my nose. This is the type of woman she is, tired, just woke up, but still taking care of me. I wonder how I got so lucky. I sniffle as she helps me out of my sweatshirt, and I set it on the little chair with a stuffed puppy dog on it by her window. She hands me a tissue, and I blow my nose before telling her not to go anywhere near the left pocket, and I leave it at that, because Wizard's pop gun is there, and I know she wouldn't like me having it. I chuck the tissue in the trash. She smells like cinnamon and clean bedsheets as she works me out of my shirt, lays a towel down on the carpet, and me on top of it. Mi corazón, she says, and she knows it makes me weak when she talks Spanish at me. Is it time for you to get out yet? Like, out, out? Her voice still sounds a little husky from sleep. For a moment, I feel guilty waking her up and asking her to work on me. But when she starts... It all melts away. Since I was 15, I haven't been able to raise my left arm above 90 degrees because we got into it with a bunch of bloods at Ham Park after they came by with spray paint to cross out our plaqueazos right in front of us like they were tough. It was stupid. And the brawl that came next, 
A guy with a little round afro and a face like a pineapple got me down and stabbed me six times with a broken bottle. He cut up my left shoulder and left lap muscle real good. It was Lou who got him off me. She had a broken bottle of her own, and she brought it down on his scalp again and again. Every time she cut his head and blood came out, his hair soaked it up. No kidding. It made a little sound when it did, too. Every time, like, foop. I'll never forget that. You can't. He lived, from what I hear. But I wouldn't want to see his head if he ever had to shave it bald. That's all I'll say about that. By the time I was fixed up, though, my left lat was an inch shorter than my right, and I'm weaker on that side. That's why fate never asked me to lift anything too heavy, like bodies. You should see my scars. They look like little brown constellations raised on my skin. Galaxies. That's what Beant said when he did this little black and gray owl tattoo on my chest a while back. I always liked his description of them. It made my scars seem less like healed wounds and more like something bigger, something better. Irene orders me onto my stomach and sets to working my feet. She bends my left leg at the knee and leans her weight into me, stretching my whole leg, my calf, my thigh, my hamstring. Thai massage is different from regular massage. It took me a while to get used to it, but now that I have, I can't have any other kind. It's more like stretching and pushing, which is one of the truths of our relationship, I guess. She's always stretching and pushing me in different ways. She's even doing it now. We could go anywhere, she says. You know, I don't have to go to nursing school here. I can maybe transfer. It takes money for that, I say. What about your mom and your sister? They can come with us, and we can always figure out something for money. We could go all Bonnie and Clyde, I say and laugh. I'll be Clyde. I'd be a good Bonnie, but I can do without the guns, she says. Flip over. She also says, so I do. I'm on my back, looking straight up at the ceiling, and she's got the sole of her right foot in my left armpit. She's slowly pulling my bad shoulder toward her. I feel the stretch go all the way down my spine and into my right hip. It burns a little. I can't leave fate, I say. Not ever. He needs me. But what if something goes wrong? Not everybody's as smart as you, baby. What if somebody did something that pointed back at you or even snitched? What if you got locked up? I think of Apache. He may not be the smartest, but he does what he's told, and he always comes through. I think of how his only job is to drive the truck to an underpass and burn it. For a second, though, Irene's words get to me, and I'm scared he might fail. And if he does, what will happen to us? All I'm saying is, you've put your time in. Irene says, you know you can't be banging forever, right? You're going to have a degree soon. You could get a job. You can maybe even have a family someday. I say, I could never do law enforcement. Hell no. It doesn't have to be that. Just think about it, she says. It's like tutoring, right? I'm not telling you what to do. Just asking you to think and work it out for yourself. Are you saying get out like how my father got out? I don't realize how mad I sound about it until I've said it. Leave his wife and kid and move away? Start a new family someplace else? Irene's quiet for a second, but her hands don't stop. I can tell she's thinking about conversations we've had, the details of them, how I don't like talking about my mom going crazy into drugs after my dad left when I wasn't even two years old, how I don't remember what his face looks like because mom burns all the damn photos in a rage. But the second she found out he was living in Linwood or Compton or somewhere, she borrowed money from her parents and moved us here. 
making me the new kid in a place where that wasn't an easy thing to carry, and how that meant I got beat the fuck up most days until Ernesto took big brother pity on me and started making sure I walked to school with the Veras, and how my mom was so deep into the hole she dug with her drugs that she never even bothered to search for my father, just tried to numb the pain every day, all that, and still, Irene's hands never stopped. You are not your father. She says it like the conversation is over now, over for good. Her words come out tough, like she'd fight me if I disagreed. I groan then, but not about what she's saying. I'm actually groaning because Irene's pulling harder than she ever pulled before, and the stretch feels like it might pull my tailbone out. She knows I've been all involved for a long time, but she doesn't know any specifics, and I'll never tell her. It doesn't do to be pillow talking. In fact, the only time she ever sees fate and anybody else is if it's for food, if we're barbecuing or something. Nobody talks business then. We just eat. It goes on like this. She pushes. She pulls. She puts her 120-some pounds of weight into stretching me. It hurts, if you want to know the truth. She says that I'm in charge of my life. It's my choice. Her dad never got one. My dad went too far. I can do whatever I want. It's tough sometimes how she talks like this. She doesn't know everything I've done. She has no idea about the big picture. She comes from a good family. I don't. I was just an angry little latchkey kid, getting in fights to prove how tough I was, how much I didn't care I was alone. The only reason I'm something else now all started with fate. And what Irene doesn't understand is that this game started a long time ago for me. There's no standing up now, no walking away from the table. I got dealt my hand when I got my name got clever. And sure, guys have gotten out before. They've moved out of the neighborhood and had kids. That was before Joker, Trouble, and Momo got wiped out. There's no other game in Linwood now, just us and some Crips. But we're good with them. We have an understanding. And I don't know much about cards, but I know you get to play what you're dealt. Sometimes, though, it's like Irene's hands won't take no for an answer. She has the strongest grip of anyone I've ever met. The more they work, the more she's telling me that I'm still Robert too, that I'm him and clever both. And maybe that's the problem now, because I'm starting to open up to the idea that maybe life can be different for me. I blame school for that. I blame her too. Still, she stretches and she pulls. She makes me see the good, and somewhere along the way, I grow. It's always been this way for us. It's how I got my GED. It's how I got into Southwest. Might even be how I do something else someday. If I did, I think it'd be the only way. And after all the bad things I've done, I'm not so sure my life deserves a happy ending. But Irene always wants to give me one by push or by pull. Thank you for listening to Harper Audio Presents, edited by Sharon Matlin. If you'd like to hear the next excerpt of All Involved, we'll post a clip from day five next Tuesday. And you can hear my interview with Ryan in days one through four at Harper Audio Presents. This is Ryan Gaddis, the author of All Involved. Thank you so much for listening, but this isn't the whole story. To learn more of these characters, please check out the unabridged versions in print, audio, and ebook formats. Thank you for listening. <laughs>